Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have on the podcast, David Fitch. How are you, sir? I'm very good, and I'm so privileged to be talking to you because I understand uh, you people in Austin don't have a hockey team. Yeah, it's uh, one of the uh, the best things about uh, Austin. I mean, we don't uh, we don't we- consider me a missionary to Austin. <laughs> I'm going to bring the gospel of ice hockey to Austin. You do have one in Dallas. You do not have one in Houston. Yeah, you know. This has got some work to do down there in the area of ice hockey. Well, uh, as you basically just identified yourself as a Canadian uh, from the get-go, you you lived in Canada for as a youth. Were you actually born there? No, no. I my parents moved from Owen Sound, Ontario, to Elmhurst, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, where Bobby Hall. Hmm. And never mind, you don't know who Bobby those Hall, people no. are. Uh, no, I know who Bobby Hall is. Didn't he play with no mask oh. or something and? He was a no, no, no. Don't just don't go out of your range right now. Try to hang. You, in okay, there. You, but, do you know the one hockey name I know? Alexander Mogilny. He was nice. Yeah, Buffalo Sabers. And and, he, and you know he's a little bit obscure, but anyways, that's a, that's 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 amazing. You like that pull? But I, I uh, my parents moved two months from Owen Sound, Ontario, Canada, folks. That's in Canada. And uh, to Chicago area where I was born. And I always say to my mom, why? Why'd you move two months? Actually, it was in February. Nobody moves in February. Mm. But I tell people I was not born in Canada, but I'm pretty sure I was conceived in Canada. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm not going to check the math on that, but I'll believe you. (laughs) So do you consider yourself more Canadian than Chicagoan? Chicagoan? No, no, no. I am totally, as much as I regret it, I am unabashedly an American and a Chicagoan. Okay. And, uh, you know, but I did grow up after we moved to Chicago, uh, six, seven years later, we moved back. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario for a large part of, well, for almost all elementary school, junior high, some high school. And, and so uh, I do cherish those years. When, when people think of Canadians, they think of friendly, nice people and healthcare. When you think of people from Chicago, friendly is not the first word that comes to mind. Which one do you think um, uh, has a stronger influence? That's not where you're from, though. <laughs> uh, maybe if you're from Texas, anybody is an enemy, which gets to the uh, subject of my book today. Right. Maybe if, if from Texas, nice. everybody's an enemy. Yeah, nice plug. Uh, I appreciate that. Okay, let's ask the important question. White Sox or Cubs? White Sox. Really? Now, uh, you are friends no reservation. with Scott McKnight, who I believe is uh, uh, is not going to appreciate that that answer you just given. Right, right. He's down the hall. And, of course, uh, his son works for the Cubs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the, when they did win the World Series first time in 152 years, uh, he had the World Series ring on his finger, and he was parading it up and down and back and mm-hmm. forth and bringing it into my office and kind of, you know, in an inappropriate way, shoving it in my face and acting like, you know. So anyways, yeah, yeah, he is a Cub fan. It's, it's good to see uh, that the Jesus Creed does not include humility anywhere. Or, or uh, right, I had another word in mind, but uh, anyways, uh <laughs> 
we can compete in sports. Uh, by the way, I'm not that big of a baseball fan anymore ever since the strike and all that stuff. I know it's 20 years ago, but uh, I am a White Sox fan when I am a baseball fan. Southside, true grit, uh, hardworking, blue-collar Southside people. The North Side is kind of uppity. You know what I'm saying? That's Chicago. Yeah, they're, I just gave they're, it a They're too uppity. You don't want the Cubbies. I, I mean, I, I respect, Not no. So you don't like uh, the Nequists because I know that they're big Cubs fans. And McKnight, you don't like him uppity as well. No, no, I didn't say I don't like That's them. What I, I get along. I love, I love them, but you know, bad taste in baseball, problematics there. But that doesn't mean that. Unlike in Texas, where I guess if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, you can't really have, have dinner with anybody. Uh, uh, here, we, if we differ in baseball or other sports, we can get along quite well. Actually, McKnight doesn't even understand what a hockey puck is, so there's nothing to talk to him about I mean, honestly, when it comes to that. That's probably one of the best things about McKnight is that he, he, he doesn't know what a hockey puck is. Um, but speaking of bad taste, you brought up that subject. Um, there's a rumor I've heard about you that you not only tolerate, but you actually choose McDonald's coffee. Dude. Is that true or false? Dude, about 15, 14 years ago, man, they had the worst coffee in the world. Then they changed it, and it became the bold roast. And it really got pretty good. It's not as good as Tim Horton's coffee, but it's almost as good. <laughs> better than Starbucks. Better than – yeah, and free refills. Yeah, okay. I'm a big fan. Okay. McDonald's coffee, ladies and gentlemen, a big fan. I, okay, I'm not saying that my audience doesn't like you. But I feel like a few things that you said, I, I think coffee from McDonald's, not going to win many fans. The, uh, I think the disrespect of Texas actually might be endearing to some of my audience. Hockey, I don't know. But I, what I feel like you're doing here is you're setting up the premise for the book that it's not us versus them, and you're creating yourself as, dare I say, the quintessential example of if, if people can like you despite your McDonald's preferences, despite your hockey, despite your disdain for Texas, then therefore the gospel, the, dare I say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Dude, you're so, so, uh, what, you must be some kind of an amazing preacher because you are a word smith. And yes, I agree with almost everything you just said. You know, some people write books because uh, if they, you know, it's kind of like what my a uh, good Texan, by the way, Stanley Hauerwas, says about being a pacifist, I have to be a pacifist because I'm so, excuse the language, damn violent. <laughs> I'm so violent. I have to depend on Jesus to be a pacifist. So, yeah, you're probably right. I needed to write the church of us versus them because I'm so prone, and I think most human beings are in their uh, human flesh, to making enemies as we uh, are walking and navigating the turf of our current culture. Mm -hmm. I don't think I have seen a book cross my proverbial desk with a title that is more appropriate and needed for the present day moment. Uh, other than the title of this book, The Church of Us, I feel like that encapsulates so much of what we are struggling with, that our church is struggling with, that um, you just see it all over the place. And so for you to write this book, it, I mean, it, it's spot on what we need. And you, what you wrote is what you describe as a political theology. Can you explain what, what that term means? Yeah, well, um, political theology, it actually has 
a history of 40, 50 years, starting with maybe Jürgen Moltmann, post-World War II German theologian, European. But, you know, the idea that, that Jesus, that God, that's the theology part, affects the way we live together as social bodies, that's the political part, is the idea of political theology. Political theology asks, how does God shape our lives to live together as a people, as a politic? And uh, I think that's, uh, that's really what this book is trying to say. How does our beliefs shape our practices to be a different kind of people in the world that make peace, that make space for his presence to reconcile, forgive, and transform the world instead of entering into the world on the world's terms, the antagonisms that drive the world. Mm -hmm. One of the evidences of the division that exists right now is probably when some of us hear the term political theology, the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of partisan politics. And our theology leans us to be Republican or Democrat. So even the way we hear the word politics refers to partisanship. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had five hours to explain how we got to that point. Um, But not only would your audience be bored, but I'd be tired and probably sleeping at the end of the fourth hour. But anyways, the point is, the way we conceptualize power the way we conceptualize the way God works in the world through us has a lot to do with us with us thinking that God's going to change the world through nation-state politics or by my vote uh, on the election day in November. Then he will use the church to change the culture and bring the gospel of reconciliation, renewal, and transformation of all things. So we have major, 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 can I say major one more time? We have just major problems that the culture is dealing with. You know, the, the, the top liners are racism, sexuality, immigration, socioeconomic politics, and nation state politics, and police politics. And the, the way that most people think at least American Christians who've been kind of shaped to think this way the last 20 or 30 years is, the way I'm going to change those problems is by going to the voting booth. I want to suggest no. That is actually a minimal thing. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and vote. But in the words of Hauerwas and others, don't expect too much from our government. It's, it's, it's a preservatory institution, not a redemptive one. Instead, the church is called to be present as the kingdom of God every place we live and infest the world with a new kingdom. And that's what I'm arguing for in this book. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. I, I do think it's the elevation of, of the political machine, the devaluing of the church that's, that's gotten here, gotten us to where we are. Um, your definition of the, the political machine as uh, preservatory versus rede- – what, what were the words you used? Redemp- okay. Redempt. Okay, so when we think of redempt, we think this is what's going to um, give us the hope that we can believe in, or this is what's going to make America great again. Both of those are very, like, redemptive theme uh, slogans for the last two uh, presidents. When we think of politics instead of as preservatory, how does that change our our view on what politics are doing? Well, all right, this is complicated, but some of your listeners might know I'm an Anabaptist. I'm an evangelical Anabaptist, which is weird. It's just plain weird. Okay, but Anabaptists 
uh, believe, uh, and this goes back to Luther, who was not an Anabaptist, obviously, but uh, that there's a right hand and a left hand, that God works in the world, or God works in different ways in the world through the right hand and the left hand. The left hand is through coercion, through um, uh, physical power, and that would be government, state, police, etc., etc. Um, <clears throat> the right hand... Luther called the spiritual power, or the power of God at work through his spirit. He individualized it, but I actually think it's much more than that. It's by God's presence that he works in the world, period. And it's not coercive. So, so there are things that need that can be get that can get done. You've heard the story of Cyrus in the Old Testament and how God used Cyrus to accomplish certain purposes with Israel by force. And and so he can preserve society through government. And he can keep people from killing one another using a police force, but he will not redeem the world. He will not restore us to uh, uh, reconciled relationships, forgiveness with him and presence with one another and, and, a, and a healing in our bodies and souls and, and our social realities and families as well. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of redemption. That's the work of made possible in and through Jesus Christ. That's different. Right hand, left hand. Yep. Jesus, Jesus works from the right hand of the Father over all things, bringing all things to himself. Yep. As our mutual friend Sean Isaac Palmer uh, might have let you know that we are both from the Churches of Christ, and in the Churches of Christ, uh, there has always been uh, a heavy influence of the Anabaptist stream. Uh, David Lipscomb, who of course is the namesake of the Church of Christ School in, in Nashville, uh, was an outspoken uh, Anabaptist. And so a, a lot of the, um, uh, I don't want to say the corruption, but the uh, negative influence of the religious right on much of conservative evangelical Christianity uh, I mean, it affected the Churches of Christ, but it didn't have the same stranglehold that it did on many others because we've had in our yes. DNA, like, hey, this this isn't how how, how we should do things. Uh, but we look at the influence of the re- religious right. We see the uh, most recent election, and it'd be easy to say, well, that that's the source of the problems in America. But one of the things that you make uh, an observation in the book is that uh, the divisiveness of the 2016 election is merely a symptom of a deeper and broader phenomenon that has come not just to define America, but has come to define Christianity. So as we're defining what, yeah. what this sort of uh, deeper, broader phenomenon is, uh, how would you connect the dots on that? Well, um, okay, so even Church of Christ... Even, I mean, basically Protestant, uh, Protestants, whether they be evangelical or mainline, we, we've been in power for a long time, mm-hmm. especially if we're white. And so, uh, you know, Andy of Mayberry uh, in the 1950s when he went to church, there's only white people there. There's no, uh, there was no persons of color that I remember. And it was a very white world. And the people who are in the minority worlds and the, and the marginalized world were not seen on TV, right? But we were in power. Anything we said, yeah, people understood. Billy Graham held uh, campaigns and crusades and 150,000 people showed up and everybody understood what he was talking about and they showed it on TV. I mean, this is the world I grew up in in the 60s and 70s. And so, uh, but when we're losing that power, when we're now, when the world is fracturing and fragmenting and we have challenges on all fronts, we tend to get defensive and we tend to try to hold on. 
And you can either get defensive or accommodative, but whatever happens is we get into these antagonisms and we start battling it out because we're used to being in power and this is the way we used to do it. And unfortunately, I feel like most of the evangelical church, uh, Protestant church, same way, they just they just do it in nicer ways. Uh, and so the mainline and the, and the evangelicals are holding on for dear life and we're getting caught in these fights and these antagonisms. And that's because we've lost power and we're trying to hold on to it yeah. for all it's worth. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the two responses you just mentioned a second ago, but the idea of to uh, re-entrench ourselves in in our truth, in truth, uh, or we accommodate. And so it seems like those are the options that make a whole lot of sense. But w- what I think you're pushing us towards in the book is that there's something on the other side of just being entrenched or just accommodating, that there's something, and I like the language you use, it was uh, uh, beyond enemies, trying to get to that space. Yeah. W- Obviously, when when you are in tension, and obviously losing power is a, a great source of tension and and cognitive dissonance. Uh, but that's when it seems like it's most easy to, to hold on or to to grab something tighter. But instead, like I think the idea of let's find a different space, let's move forward to beyond being an enemy, uh, is ultimately I think the call that Jesus has for all of us. How would you describe yes. what that space beyond being an enemy, beyond antagonism, as you describe it, looks like? Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, both moves. The defensive move that says, I want to defend what I believe in. Let, let's just take sexuality, for instance. Uh, when I say something like, uh, we, are, we are not affirming of A, B, and C sexuality, we're trying to hold on to our power to determine sexuality. The other side is, we're affirming A, B, C, D sexuality. And that in and of itself is a power move, trying to acquire power through the, the, the culture, which used to be Christian, and we could trust. We're saying, okay, we're with you. We're with your power. Both of them are power moves. Jesus uh, doesn't operate. Hey, can I interrupt you there? Jesus, can I interrupt you? Hey, yeah. Connect the docs more on how that's a power move. It, it's power like I, I get to define sexuality or I get to uh, grab hold into the political power of this group. Is that what you mean by it's a power move? Uh, the defensive or the accommodative. Yeah. You understand how defensive is a, is a power move, right? Yeah, because it's... Enforcing. Yeah, it's enforcing. I get to say this is what's right, this is what's wrong. Yeah. The other move is, I mean, I don't know if you've ever felt it. I certainly have. I mean, right now we are feeling it in the areas of sexuality. I want the, the overwhelming cultural understanding of sexuality as this kind of self-expressivist uh, sexuality, affirming lesbian, gay, bi, trans, and various other sexualities and marriage and so forth. There's a drive to say, hey, I want to be on the bandwagon too. I want to be relevant. There's a lot of power in that. Hmm. I want to jump on board. I'm going to accommodate and be relevant and, and acquire power via the, that means. But there's no real engagement of those issues. So in that way, both the defensive and the accommodative don't engage for mission. They're just both power moves, hmm. in my opinion. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, okay, I, I interrupted you. You're oh, saying by the way. So what, uh, let me just clarify: when when a church goes into a a room and they get the five elders together and they say, "Okay, we got to make a decision on sexuality. We're going to be affirming or not affirming," and they say, "We are affirming." That's the Christendom instinct. We've got to tell people what to do, and we've got to align people. Mm. And so, all of these things are power moves. That, that I feel we get caught up in the antagonism and we never get down to discerning what's actually going on in people's lives 
And I'm talking sexuality, racism, economics, poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I, I, I want a little bit more from this. So, so if let's say on sexuality. Uh, so instead of the power moves, as you're calling them, of affirming or not affirming, of the Christendom move, as you're describing it, flesh out what it would look like to take the other option, to take this beyond enemies option with the sexuality conversation. Yeah, so the Church of Jesus Christ has several hundred years, if not a, th- a couple of thousand years, <clears throat> of wisdom on sexuality. <clears throat> and, you know, um, we don't get to make up sexuality. Uh, we don't get to make up who Jesus is. We don't get to make up, you know, but but the fact is, though, that now we're confronted with what appears to be, let's say, it's not new now. Uh, it's rather getting rather ubiquitous everywhere we go now. But 20 years ago, 25 years ago, what? We're, 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 we're talking about the normative sexuality of, of uh, lesbian or gay uh, or bisexuality and and marriage associated with it. that's not and we're, 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 we have a new thing to discern the question is now how are we going to discern that are we going to discern it out of a power posture or are we going to enter in and ask what's actually going on listen um, <clears throat> so often what happens is and, and this is I think you probably know or maybe you don't but Andrew Marin wrote the book us versus us not us versus them. Uh, and this was like five years ago. And he did the most uh, exhaustive study of gay and lesbian people, 3,000 samplings, questionnaires. We discovered that 88% of lesbian gay people are from a church. And out of the 88%, over 90 are from a conservative church. And the structures and frameworks that shaped uh, this kind of sexuality actually came from evangel or conservative Protestant church. And the, so we never talked to one another. We just exerted power. And, and yet some stuff is going on here. A lot of stuff, complexity stuff, stuff that uh, I could go on and on. But you told me not to do a uh, monologue. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Okay. But the point is, instead of before we listen, the Bible says, A, you need to shape up. Or the Bible says, B and C, and we can go along with this. We need to listen, open up space and allow God to work. Uh, if, if, have I got time Keep for going. one quick example? <clears throat> Somebody called me and he said, hey, I got to leave my church. I go, why? He says, well, we have a lesbian couple in my church and I love them and they're, they love Jesus. Um, but the uh, issue was coming up that they're going to teach Sunday school and take some leadership in some of the committees. And I got worried and people started to talk. And so the elders and the pastor went in the room and heard about this. And they said, we are affirming LGBTQ. We are affirming lesbian and gay marriage and their membership, open to mer- membership in all duties. And boom, we're done with it. He says they didn't even talk to anybody. So now I got to leave. And I said to the guy, you don't have to leave. Jesus says, if you have a grief, grievance against somebody, a sin, go talk to them face to face. Go talk to the, uh, we'll call her Georgette, and say, uh, I, I, I love you, Georgette, but um, you're a lesbian, and I feel uh, insecure about you t- teaching my 12-year-old daughter. I'm worried that she's going to see you as an exemplar, and I do not, I, I submit to you, I don't believe lesbian sexuality is the best thing for my daughter and then, and then open up a conversation. Well, what, what might happen there 
is Georgette might say, no, you have no idea. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not the way sexuality happens. Uh, it happens this way. And, and then I would say, well, tell her an example of where someone who has been an exemplar in your life, sexuality-wise, has shaped your life. And then maybe she'll say something like that. And the whole conversation will be opened up. And my guess is if Georgette is as mature a Christian as you say she is, she'll say, let's hold off on me teaching Sunday school and let's continue this conversation and let's see what God is at work. And I feel like you're, you are actually listening to me and I'm dealing with some of the things I've never dealt with in my life before. Like when and how did I learn and understand myself, understand myself as a lesbian and so forth. These are the kind of conversations we need to open up on the ground we don't need to start making up sexuality, just we need to understand how to disciple and allow God to work on the ground. Yeah, I, I love the idea of making conversation, of listening, of, of actual dialogue a foundational part of the way the community engages with substantial issues that will always, uh, that will always cause a great deal of emotional involvement in them. And I, I think that the witness of Scripture is that, I mean, the Jew-Gentile stuff that is ubiquitous in Scripture would have carried the same weight, if not more weight, dare I say. I mean, you're the biblical scholar, um, not me, but th- would carry as much or more weight than our modern-day debates and discussions over sexuality. And and one of the refrains that Paul keeps, keeps going back to is is gentle, like respond gently to them. And there's a willingness to say, hey, I think you should eat this meat, but you know what? I'm going to acquiesce to what makes you more comfortable. And there's an ability to create space and dialogue, which I think in a divisive, in a divided world like ours, it's a language we don't even have. Yes. And uh, I will personally testify that when we have come together in our little church, I'm in a church plant of approximately 50 adults and 30 kids now. When we come together over some of the hot topics that are brewing in our church, whether it be women in ministry, sexuality, gender, etc., places where we need direction, but when we come together and read the Bible, like I was trying to uh, talk about in the church of us versus them, and we submit to one another, and we listen to the teachers, but we also listen to those who have questions, we listen, and we just work it out. Oh, we took seven sessions on, on women in ministry and the church. And even those who did not agree trusted what the Spirit was doing in our church to lift up women as pastors alongside men in our church. And I think that's the way it works. Not everybody agrees 100%, but we learn how to trust one another and grow and see what God is doing. I am traditionalist on sexuality, but the way God works and extends his purposes and his teaching into these new areas, we have to allow the spirit to work and and uh, develop what he wants to do in people's lives. Yep, yep. Uh, I don't know where the phrase came from, but uh, the idea that Christianity is not a created religion, but it's one that's passed on, that's it's, it's inherited from generations before us, so we don't get to make up stuff the way that we want to. But we do have the ongoing process of discerning God's continued work and movement amongst us, and that's not easy. And I, before I was a part of the church I'm a part of now, uh, I was a part of a church plant, and we made a decision on gender um, uh, involvement and becoming an egalitarian church. And there are some people who it was very uncomfortable. It wasn't maybe what they would have wanted to do. But we created an environment where 
we sat, we talked, we listened, we had conversations, and people were like, you know what, this isn't what I would do, but you know what, I'm on board and we're, we're, we're not leaving, we're staying here. And I, f- I feel like that's kind of like the, the picture of what church is supposed to look like, but it seems like those conversations maybe are easier in church plants because there isn't you know, 30, 40 years of tradition that's behind these issues, and there's an understanding that we're willing to re-engage with this stuff. But sometimes when you're in a church for a long period of time, you've done things a certain way, and so the idea of changing it is just uh, a non-starter, and so we don't want to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, there's no question. It's it's a different kind of leadership task uh, with an established church than it is with a church plant. Nonetheless, folks, unless... You want to disappear as a church, and you don't want to engage your community. You have to lead into disruption and change and allow the Holy Spirit to do what he's going to do. You will lose people, probably. Hopefully not, but probably. And and that's the way God works. So these are difficult times. We must call ourselves to mission and engagement for the future of the gospel. I mean, in the United States and Canada, I'm I'm not called to Africa right now. I'm not called to even Europe. I'm called to United States, and we are in need of missionaries who will engage those who are struggling, hurting, pained by all the uh, cultural maladies of our time. And I think the gospel is for these people. Can we extend? Can we extend the gospel into these places? Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to talk about uh, identity markers versus distinctives. And... If I'm understanding your book correctly, an identity marker becomes something that uh, creates an enemy. It becomes uh, almost like the language you use elsewhere in the book is of a banner. Uh, these ideas like this is who we are, we're separate apart from you. But distinctives are like there's something unique and peculiar about us. Peculiar maybe in a good sense of yes. the word. And one creates division, the other creates uh, a healthier environment. How do you maintain distinctives without them becoming... Uh, contentious, bellicose identity markers. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, whenever you uh, remove a belief from practice, uh, the danger is there that it becomes an identity marker, a banner. You know, and I always use the, uh, in my own denomination, uh, in the 20s, when we were just beginning as a denomination, uh, alcohol was a big raging problem in the United States of America. It was around the time of prohibition. Alcoholism was everywhere, destroying families. And the church that my mother was in made the decision not to it just flat out, no alcohol. We as a people have decided it's so evil, we're not going to participate. It's everywhere in our culture. And that was a good decision. And it saved a lot of people's families marriages, etc. And it really was a witness to the gospel of how, because to overcome alcoholism that day was the equivalent of overcoming uh, drug addiction, heroin addiction today. And but, but, but the problem was that was a discernment. That was a distinctive. The, the holiness denominations, that became part of their brand, if I can put it that mm-hmm. way. It was a distinctive that got extracted so that 50 years later, the alcohol problem had changed. Actually, the world had become very aware of the problem of alcoholism in a way that was different. And and it became now uh, a marker. And those who drink, those Lutherans, for goodness sakes, and, and especially those Anglicans, mm-hmm. those drunkards, and, and they're, they're – 
they're not us, actually. They're not. They're those kind of Christians. We are the ones who are holy. And, you know, people, you know, I can remember my mother would say, how are they going to know we're different if we drink alcohol? And so the idea of extracting the distinctive from its discipleship in everyday life is what turned it into a marker that marked us, us holiness people, against those liberal Protestants and probably Church of Christ, too, because I've noticed a few of your people um, imbibe. But anyways, that's beside any time we so so we must be careful we must watch for be on guard our beliefs have to be tied into how we live and how we discern life or else if they're not working anymore they don't actually have anything to do with real life they become a banner it's not you know premillennialism i use in the book my, my denomination premillennialism nobody knows what it means anymore but back in the day it defined who the people that believe in in the second coming of Christ are over against those who don't. Mm-hmm. And the, the, at this point, it becomes a problem, yeah. and, a, and it becomes an antagonism and, and extracts us out of engaging people for Christ and the gospel. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of the book of the Church of Us Versus Them, there is a great endorsement by Sean Isaac Palmer, who is from the Church of Christ, just in case anyone wanted to know that piece of information right now on the subject of alcohol consumption. Um, the... Uh, the historical <laughs> the historical setting of becoming uh we him under the bus aren't we no i would never do that to, I, like i didn't say anything i was just making a statement like that literally is on the book so um it's called innuendo <laughs> anyways okay uh you know i'm not a, a seminary professor so i don't know these fancy words and i'm just a simple preacher from texas ah. but um Okay, going back to uh, becoming teetotalers, uh, my tradition was uh, a a group of people that typically abstain from alcohol in general, but knowing the context of turn of the century, early 1900s, like the amount of liquor that was consumed, if you've ever researched that, it is mind-blowing. But like you said, the culture has changed, we've become aware of something, and the way that we engage with that issue changed with it. Um, one of the other examples used in the book is actually biblical inerrancy. And the idea of biblical inerrancy becomes this arguing point, and it becomes this this thing that we're going to debate over, whereas th- that in some ways is, like you call it, an identity marker, but a distinctive is becoming part of the story of Scripture, which is far more all-encompassing. It's not just learning facts and answers to Bible trivia, but it's changing your life. How would you help people see the difference of being a part of the story versus the the arguments over well is the Bible infallible or an Aaron or not? Wow, yeah, like like so I'm, I'm uh, it's getting harder to ad- admit this, but I'm an evangelical still. I just, uh, you know evangelical is a dirty word these days. I, I wish I had another way to talk about it, but I believe in the authority of Scripture. I have a high view of Scripture. I, I believe in conversion. I believe God wants to change us. I believe in e- uh, 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 engaging the world for Christ. I believe the centrality of Christ in the cross. Okay, uh, but but what happened with all those things is we ended up turning them into identity markers and separated us from engaging the culture for, for Christ. The Scripture issue is we need to learn to see how Scripture is this grand drama of God and how it's an amazing story, a story not little s but big s, a true story, our true story. 
And um, this is what God is doing in the world. We, we, we can read many number of stories, but this one places us right center smack in the dab in the middle of what God is doing in the world, how he's restoring us to his presence. And I think we should get away from inerrancy only because it makes no sense anymore. It doesn't even make sense. Uh, I mean, it made sense in the 20s. Mm-hmm. when you got to understand the epistemological architecture of what was going on. It does not make sense today. It actually undermines the authority of Scripture uh, because of its assumptions and the way it works. Can you give, give us that so give me a 30-second background yeah. for the uh, epistemological foundation as you, with your fancy words, call yeah, it. Well, I, I, I have told this story before. I was in my ordination council. They asked me if I believed in the inerrancy of scripture and i i said yes but it's a little too liberal for me they asked me what do you mean too liberal?" and i go well inerrant according to who uh and they said history and science and so what i'm says i'm not going to put history science or anything else above scripture scripture is my authority and so the minute you do that you're undermining mm-hmm. me and that, that kind of concept wasn't available in the 1920s. It was actually a good defense of Scripture for people working out of that mindset. Today, that doesn't work. Now we know what the Bible is. It is the grand story of God carried on in the history of a people. And it, and it explodes. It actually opens up the space for God to see who he is, what he's doing. Who he, We get to know God through this Bible and this story. And and live into his reality and where he's taking the world. That's a that's a different way of thinking about scripture. And we will know its authority by living its authority. Yeah, and, and I think that authority gets lived in the local church, in in the communities of people who gather around the name of Jesus, who, as scripture said, is the word of God. And in that way, Jesus is the inerrant incarnation of what God is. And we, as members of the church, get to proclaim that when we can become communities that have a separate witness than the witness of divisiveness that we see in our political machine and, and multiple other facets of everyday life. Uh, but I think this goes back to where we started, began, began the conversation, that yeah. the church has to be a counter witness, not to be just echoing the witnesses of whatever side you end up on. Yes, yes. And uh, so you, you've summarized a lot of the important ideas of what I think uh, uh, we need to focus on in this time. Uh, I just think we're in a heck of a mess here. And God's calling us to be his people, his reconciling people who read scripture together and submit an open space for him to work. Not just a God who is in between the pages of this book, but a God who is alive, well, and real. He's real and he's working in the world. And that's what the Bible leads us to. Yeah, I agree. Now, I did summarize that well, but there's still far more in the book, so let's not undersell the book. That I mean, like you said, I feel like I did a really good job of summarizing all of it, but uh, I mean, there, there are a few nuggets that you're going to have in the book that I didn't verbalize. Yeah, well, this is a, what, a one-hour podcast? Well, okay, I don't know if you can stand me for an hour, but 45 minutes for sure. Uh, specifically, one of the things that I'm never going to do is make any hockey illustration like you did, and uh, like you, you coach your kids hockey. Is that right? You got a kid who's playing little hockey yes. now. Yeah, uh, fourteen years what old. What do you call Pee Wee hockey? Been, or uh, this book was written a couple of years ago. So now it's a bantam. I mean, I'm actually coaching the this coming year will be the last year I coach him, which I grieve. By the way, oh. I grieve it. I'm going to 
have a hard time letting go. I might try to convince the high school coach to let me on, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I do love. I, I find so much. Don't, don't get me started talking about hockey. I just find so much to learn about life from the game of hockey. It's fantastic. Much better than the game of football easy, or easy baseball. Now. I mean, if you get something out of hockey. I can't imagine how much you'd learn from football because it's such a better (laughs) game. Now, even though you and Tony probably are uh, on different ends of the spectrum on a few theological issues, I feel like you and Tony can come together around the breaking of teeth and noses at uh, the sacrament of hockey. Tony who? Tony Jones. Did I not say his name? You didn't say Tony Jones. Are you talking Tony Jones up in uh, Minnesota? That's basically Canada. That's basically where you're from. No, 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 no. It, it's nice up there, but it's not Canada. Honestly, anything north of Texas is Canada to me. So I don't, I don't understand <laughs> the the demarcation you're trying to create, dude. You know, you know, I was hoping to bring some Canadian audience to your show, but I don't think it's going to happen now. <laughs> Here's the thing: you can. This is what I've I've said over and over again. You can make fun of Canadians; they'll still listen because they're so nice, they're so friendly. You make fun of them, but they're still going to stay they, there. You don't. They are, but don't put... I'm just saying, like, one of the greatest mixed martial artists in the history of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, a Canadian gentleman named George St. Pierre. Nicest guy in the world. He would destroy your face if need be, but he's still friendly and would shake your hand afterwards. That's the Canadian spirit that I respect and everyone loves. All right, well, I'll go along. I don't know this person you're talking about, but I'll go along with it. It does sound very impressive. I hope I emulate that person. Okay, well, here's what I thought going into the podcast. I, I feel like I've known who your name. I've, I've seen you on the interwebs for a while, and I, I was always curious as to how come we didn't know each other. And I feel like we've kind of figured out why we didn't know each other, the Texas thing, the Canadian thing, the hockey's thing. But I feel like what we've done is we've built a bridge over that, and we found some common ground in the middle. And that that means that maybe we just learned a little bit from the book, The Church of Us versus That. I I love your relentless commitment to both self-promotion and the unity of the Spirit of God. Both of those things are uh, laudable, so well done. (laughs) All right. Well, Well, dude, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it's been on, uh, I don't even know what day this is, but a late afternoon. Mm -hmm. To commits with you about about stuff about theology and stuff and and I'm going to have to tune in more regularly now to your podcast. I highly recommend <laughs> this podcast. By the way, I have a theology on mission podcast mm-hmm. that you can find on iTunes and all the appropriate channels. Speaking of self promotion, I feel like you've got that on lock. You've got it figured out. Seriously, the the book is so on the nose of the zeitgeist. We need a book on the Church of of us versus them that moves us past. So well done. Thank you for writing it. And it honestly has been great to, uh, to finally talk with you. It's been a lot of fun. I hope we meet in person soon I, so we can you know, duke it out. I a think that's bit. great. Stop wasting your time with Sean Isaac Palmer and, and get a real church of Christ preacher. That's what you should do in your, well, I, I have to be in meetings with Sean Isaac Palmer, so I have no choice. Well, I do too, but, uh, doesn't, but I do love him. <laughs> Sean, if you're listening, love you, man. Right on. Hey, that was good. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.